Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 95. Being good with the numbers and the sports science and the monitoring side, um, it does help drive better decisions in the gym and vice versa. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon, and we are getting close to the end of season four. This is a podcast where we work to bring a wide range of voices from the strength and conditioning community. As your host, I truly value the conversations and broad perspectives that represent our field across a variety of sports and backgrounds. And especially now, after not being able to connect much in person over the past year, I want to hear from you, our listeners. What great coaches do you want to hear from in 2021 on the NSCA Coaching Podcast? I encourage all of our listeners to hit me up on Instagram or Twitter, at Eric McMahon CSCS, with your recommendations. You can also email me at eric.mcmahon at nsca.com. With that, I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks for tuning in today. We'll be back in just a moment with today's guest, Houston Dynamo Head of Sports Science, Alex Calder. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, episode 95. Being good with the numbers and the sports science and the monitoring side, um, it does help drive better decisions in the gym and vice versa. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon, and today our guest is MLS Houston Dynamo Head of Sports Science, Alex Calder. Uh, Alex, welcome to the show, man. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, humbled to be here, to be honest. Yeah, Alex and I connected recently and had a great conversation just about the training landscape uh, here in the U.S. of strength and conditioning versus um, in Australia, where he comes from. So, Alex, I want to give you a chance to tell your story. Um, let us know your background in the field. Yeah, sweet. Um, yeah, obviously, I, I started uh, back at home in Melbourne, Australia. Um, probably my uh, first exposure to the U.S. was was when I was 17, 18. I got offered a scholarship to come here and, and play in the collegiate system and um, never been to the U.S. So, at the time, I said, yeah, no worries. I'll, I'll come wherever. And um I ended up being scouted by another Aussie that was that was uh, in the collegiate uh, field here in North Dakota. So came out here and um, experienced uh, collegiate sports firsthand as a player. Ended up uh, two years here uh, and, and uh, initially in North Dakota. And during that time, I was able to intern with a uh, junior ice hockey team in uh, in Bismarck, North Dakota, as part of uh, the undergrad degree. And I was. 19 at the time, so I started to get exposed to uh, some of the, uh, I suppose you would still call that elite sport um, here. Uh, ended up venturing home and, and I, I was trying to find a nice blend between still playing and, and still thinking I was an athlete and getting my uh, strength licenses. So um, around that same time, I think I was probably 20, um, I'd, I'd gone and started doing the ACA level one courses and uh, getting my feet wet in the S&C field and while I was still playing at the time. So I had a pretty full-on schedule where I was coaching throughout the day and then um, having football training in, in the evening and trying to, you know, grasp onto that as long as I could. And then 
Uh, yeah, it got to the point in my mid-20s where I uh, realized I was a rubbish footballer and probably a better coach. Uh, <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, look, uh, packed up a suitcase and jumped on a flight and uh, landed in Boston where I didn't know anyone, but um, I was actually influenced by a lot of the private facilities out there. There was Mike Boyle's facilities and um, some uh, bigger names out there. So I... Uh, yeah, tried to just go out that way and, and, and I knew the uh, New England area was kind of compact with a lot of cities and uh, I felt there was a decent opportunity there. So started coaching in a private facility in Massachusetts a um, couple years there and, and dealing with an array of, of athletes. And then eventually uh, made my way to Purdue University as an intern under Josh Bonnetel, who I learned a, a lot from. And he helped me um, path a, a job into the uh, University of Louisville, uh, where I was uh, brought in by Tina Murray. I, I wasn't there for too long; it was about a year. And then um, Dave McKay was was the head fitness coach at uh, Orlando City, and offered me a job out there. So then, um, again, packed up and went to went to Orlando, and I was there for two seasons. Um, Dave left, and then then I was I was kind of left there by myself for a while, and then uh, I was lucky enough to, to to get a role here at Houston, which is a Western Conference team uh, under under Paul Caffrey, and yeah, I'm going on to my third season here at Houston as a head of sports science. That's awesome. So it's your second MLS team, and you have sort of gone the progression from strength coach into sports science. And that's, you know, we, we hear that a lot. Um, that can mean a lot of things depending on the program you're a part of. I also think a lot of our listeners may not, uh, have a great understanding of the MLS or what, uh, professional soccer training, uh, really consists of, um, talk about your progression from strength coach into sports science. And, you know, what does that sports science role head of sports science for the Houston dynamo consist of? Uh, yeah, it's quite interesting because it's funny you say that because I would certainly consider my background and, and probably my um, uh, primary uh, specialties uh, are strength, strength training, strength and conditioning. So um, even when I was at home, uh, the majority of my work was all strength training. I worked with pro ice hockey players and um, I was strictly only doing strength work with them. Um, but I just happen to be good with numbers and good with this sports science in quotations, if you will. Um, so yeah, my role here is, is the title is head of sports science. And, and I think um, Paul and the club shaped that um, because there was a need for, for monitoring um, at the dynamo um, more so to mitigate the risk of injury. Um, however, I, I still am in the gym every day with, with guys and, and still uh play a play a big role in the in the strength prescriptions and and, and strength coaching um i feel that it's we, we have a relatively small staff on the performance side there's there's three of us so there's there's paul who's our high performance manager um there's myself and then we have um a recently hired anthony narcissi as our strength coach um but but we're all in the gym even though our titles are different and and um just yeah, I, I try to bridge the gap between that uh, sports science monitoring side of things and and the gym work, and and then that also bridges over to, to end stage rehab as well. Um, I feel like, uh, and this is probably 
just my opinion and based on my experience that's that being good with the numbers and the sports science and the monitoring side um it does help drive better decisions in the gym and vice versa um being a good strength coach but but having good understanding of what occurs on the field and how gps um and, and just basic monitoring the players uh definitely yeah, drive some of the prescriptions in the gym too, or maybe not drives, but influences is probably a better word. Uh, influences some of the exercise prescriptions. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting, you know, coming from the international side and getting a lot of your training through the ASCA um, in Australia. And then now you've gotten this professional experience over here. What are some of the key differences that you see uh, across the international landscape and strength and conditioning uh, and sports science. Uh, yeah, I feel like uh, the, the the Australian high performance world is is uh, and, and maybe I'm biased. I don't know, but I feel like they're a couple steps ahead. And I only say that because probably the king sport at home is AFL, so Australian football, um, and they've been fairly ahead of the game as far as staffing and and delegating tasks. Um, as far as I was aware, that there were some of the first clubs around that were um, that were hiring high performance managers um, and and really branching their staff into a sports scientists, strictly sports scientists, and strictly strength coaches, and even some clubs just have strictly rehab coordinators. Um, whereas in in the current day, now we're in twenty twenty one, and and still a lot of the MLS clubs will only have two staff members or. or some of the you know uh, more res- better resource clubs will have four. Um, so when I first got here, there was only Paul and myself. Um, so when you're talking about all the roles that that need to be done, um, you've got on-field work, you've got conditioning work, strength work, rehab. Um, you become more of a generalist as opposed to I'm just a sports scientist mm-hmm. uh, or, or just a strength coach. We're kind of wearing multiple hats. Uh, and I feel like we've done a decent job of dividing and, and conquering, but um, I feel like a lot of the pro sports in Australia don't don't always uh, have those, um, I guess, you know, parts of parts of the trade that that adversity that we kind of deal with. We've been low staffed, uh, and that's only that's only comparing that to the AFL. I, I, I think uh, I haven't worked in the A-League, but I think uh, still a lot of the, the clubs in the A-League now operate with only two or three guys as well. Um, but those would be probably the biggest differences for me is is uh, there's probably more opportunity to be a, a strictly a sports scientist or strictly a strength and power coach in, uh, in Australian pro sports as opposed to here where maybe the MLS demands a little bit more of, of generalists. Um, and that's, again, strictly just speaking MLS. That's interesting. So the NSCA has a new sports science certification coming out uh, in 2021. The textbook is scheduled to launch February 26 from Human Kinetics, and we've been communicating that out um, as updates become available. And so, you know, one thing, and, and this is a voice, as we were in a panel at the coaches conference with um, Dr. Duncan French, from UFC, And, you know, he was really comparing the international landscape of of sports science coming largely from researchers and sports medicine and and professionals that weren't necessarily coaches. But here in the States, there's a huge and this is credit to the NSCA and other organizations, you know, the 
strength and conditioning coach role has gained a lot of traction and the coaching roles are embedded and ingrained to what this emerging sports science job description is. So in a way, you know, strength coaches are sports scientists, but just not all sports scientists are strength coaches. And that's been, um, a really positive message for our coaching community. Cause I think as strength coaches, we all look for, we're all looking for advancement. We're all looking for what's next. Um, and in a way working to the edge of our scope of practice. Um, and that's one of the real challenges that has been faced by coaches here in the States, maybe internationally. Um, I want to ask you specifically about technology that you guys use in monitoring for soccer. Um, I'll always call it soccer, uh, even though. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, uh, what kind of tech do you guys use in the MLS? Um, how does that uh, factor into the data processes and work with numbers that you do? Uh, yeah, so uh, we use we use GPS, we use Catapult GPS. Um, I think a lot of the clubs in the league are either using Catapult or Sat Sports, but we use Catapult GPS, uh, and then we just have other things that do play a role in the monitoring, but maybe they're considered strength pieces of equipment, like uh, the, the valid performance. We have the Norboard and, and Force Frame, uh, but that certainly plays a role into the monitoring. So that's that's kind of more what I was even alluding to is prior is. Um, those pieces of equipment are considered strength tools or maybe, uh, you know, rehab screening or, or strength screening, but does that fall under a strength coach's job or a sports scientist's job? So, um, but we, we have that technology, we have heart rate integrated um, into the GPS, into the vest that, that we use, uh, which is part of the catapult. Uh, and then we have a uh, analytics team that use video tracking software as well. So I have access to this where I'm able to look at uh, other teams um, uh, I guess GPS data, but it's, it's, it's video tracking. Uh, and that, and that's really it. So it's, it's not, um, I wouldn't say we we're we're highly reliant on technology, but we do have the basics, which is, which is GPS and then, um, some of the strength objective measures. So I had to, uh, I'll be honest with you. I had to look this up, you know, the MLS season runs, typically we'd be in preseason right now and we'd be, kicking things off in, in March and going through October, November. Um, how has COVID-19 affected the uh, schedule for 2021? And um, how is your staff working through that? Yeah, geez. Um, look, it actually affected 2020, like majorly, which, which now there's a knock-on effect to 2021 because – um, obviously we're in a moratorium phase for the, for the majority of last year. And then, um, we followed suit to the NBA and, and went to Orlando for the bubble. And, um, that became somewhat of a preseason tournament, I suppose. Um, and then we tried to go back to market, uh, and, and still play games and still travel, but it was made things a lot more difficult on our end, as far as monitoring, because the travel was heavily restricted due to COVID. So instead of, um, if, Generally speaking, if we were to play a, a team in a different time zone, say if they were one hour behind, um, uh, normally the rule of thumb is for each hour time zone, you, you travel a day prior. So if it's two time zones, you try to go one or two days prior. Uh, whereas our hands were, were tired last year. So we'd have to fly in and out on the same day. 
Um, and if we were to try to bend those rules, you'd have to get uh, you'd have to get approval from the league. So um, that made things certainly difficult from a monitoring side because now you're trying to get from our side, you're trying to get players as physically ready as possible and try to increase their readiness. Um, but you're also asking them to, to fly in the morning, you know, where they're in a jams 90-90 position and then play in the afternoon and then fly back. Um, it, it makes things incredibly tough. Um, so I, I don't know how that, how that knocks on to 2021. We don't have a whole lot of information going forward, but um, now that we've, we've gone through that sort of adverse situation in 2020, um, us as a performance staff probably have a better idea of how to, um, how to utilize different recovery modalities or, or different protocols um, when it comes to some of those travel uh, restrictions. Um, and yeah, and then, then other than that, I think that was the biggest concern that, that, that tied us down with, with, uh, with COVID. Um, other than that, like the, the training procedures were, were no different than any other, any other uh, league in, in the country. We're testing regularly. Um, wearing masks have, you know, try to try to keep social distance. Um, we ha we've had to rearrange it, the gym a little bit, uh, moving platforms around and moving areas to try and to try and fit those uh, requirements. But um, yeah, the, the travel was, the travel was brutal and I imagine it's going to be brutal again next year. So I think, uh, I think the season will be a lot more congested than previous years, um, which will certainly challenge, uh, not only us, but a coaching staff as far as rotating players and, and trying to keep, um, you know, the best squad out there as far as um, not only technical, tactical, but also how physically um, resilient they can be um, because playing two or three times a week is, is certainly tough on the body, um, especially if previous seasons haven't been that way. So uh, that, that'll certainly be a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges to think about going into 2021, but uh I'd say we learned a lot from 2020 and, and going through that. And we, we were pretty lucky that, well, not lucky, we, we worked our bollocks off, but um, we had a really low injury injury rate in 2020, knock on wood. But um, um, we did anticipate uh, throughout that moratorium phase, we did anticipate having a congested fixture. So we upped our strength training um, a lot last year. Uh, and, and I think it worked in our favor. It re we resulted in a 92% availability rate across 2020. So um, we were pretty uh, fortunate as a performance staff that that's what we yielded as far as availability. And uh, yeah, like I said, knock on wood, hopefully we can um, carry that over to next year and get some more results. But yeah. Alex, let's go back to the beginning for a little bit. You had mentioned, you know, coming over to the States and uh, into New England, uh, my old stomping grounds. And, and there's, yeah, you mentioned Mike Boyle as sort of maybe an influence in your career. Who are some of the other key influences uh, that helped shape the coach you are today? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. Yeah, you said that because he, his uh, early books um, were some of, the, some of the first ones I read. Um, so, so some of the first strength training books were from Mike Ball and also Mark Ripatoli. Mark Ripatoli, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name there, but I, that's still, I'll still read that book, Starting Strength. That was one of the best books I think out there. But um, some of the other influences uh, as far as him, as I think everyone I've worked for, I've been incredibly lucky to have, uh, in my opinion, some of the best uh, 
work under the best managers in 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 um, elite sport under Josh Bonnetall and Tina Murray and uh, even the even the guys in the MLS. I'd say they're now for me um, certainly my influences. But um, uh, yeah, early on, early on, I, I, I liked a lot of uh, Joe Ken's work. Um, loved the top tier, what what he was doing with the top tier system. I learned a lot um, and actually implemented a lot of that early on with with ice hockey players. Um, I felt that it was appropriate. Um, and then, yeah, I'd say that I'd list it off a good, yeah, no, that's <laughs> good great profile guys. There. Um, you know, and you mentioned Mike Boyle's book, uh, functional training for sport, uh, was the book that came out early two thousands and it's been through a couple of versions since. And I, I think back to that and functional training is one of those, one of those terms that gets thrown around and maybe the, the meaning gets, uh, you know, uh, misinterpreted at times but one of the things in that book is that functional training is sport general training versus sport specific training which was another big term around that time um how much would you call sport general training do you implement uh at the professional level versus really in-depth sport specific soccer specific training uh with your athletes yeah this is uh for me, this is a loaded question because I've I've evolved my philosophy um, a lot, but I've kind of done gone full circle already in the past decade of of my coaching career. Is um, I did start off like like I said, I probably read two very different early books when I was twenty, which was starting strength and then and then functional training, which are certainly on two different sides of the spectrum. Um, and uh, early on, when I was training ice hockey players, I, I was reading a lot of Peter Twist work as well, which was very, uh, in quotations, functional, if you will. So um, I started to evolve from, you know, true traditional, I guess, West Side barbell strength training, and then started to try and drip feed some of it, some of this, you know, uh, supplementary or, or also functional work, and then. Um, I started to move away from that, especially when, when going back into working into football or, or soccer, it's, I, I feel like um, it, it's uh, soccer is traditionally kind of flooded with a lot of that functional work. And I, I feel like um, a, a lot of the low hanging fruit is often undervalued as far as the traditional strength training. So for me, the, the underlying issue is what a lot of soccer players have is, is, is weakness, um, general weakness, uh, and then especially localized weakness in certain areas. But um, so my now my strength program or, or our strength program is very very traditional. Um, I I have no secrets in, in my programming, but um, I, you know we overload a lot trap bar deadlift, a, a lot of bench press, a lot of RDLs, just very very basic traditional strength stuff. Um, and, and now I certainly view, view strength training and, and I have probably for the last five years, I feel pretty strongly about um, everything in the gym is really structural and neural adaptations. Um, and we're absolutely not trying to replicate any sort of football movements. Uh, and then everything out in the field is, is your functional training, is your sports training. Um, and, and the idea of the gym now is, is, and, and I strongly believe should be is uh, 
getting players physically and, and neurologically robust enough to withstand the, the uh, football training outside. Uh, and like I said, I, th- I think it's worked in our favour. We have a cohort that that um, certainly needs strength training. So uh, a lot of the traditional traditional you know sets and rep schemes, like we, we do a lot of five by five as well, um, basic strength strength training prescriptions um, that we're doing now day to day, even throughout the season. Yeah, I think I think a lot of coaches are going to like that answer because you know as strength coaches we we often think of strength first, you know, we think of building that foundational strength level and progressing that into sports specific skills. Um, that is sort of a traditional mindset as we look towards, uh, some of the maybe more integrative or integrated approach of what sports science is. And I'm thinking of working in professional baseball and a lot of the, uh, screening and measurement technologies and, and uh, launch angles and, and all the velocity metrics that are out there um, across different sports. And so it's, it's refreshing to hear coming from a head of sports science that foundational strength still carries a lot of weight. And that in partly this is a sport that has a high conditioning value to the sport itself. It's valuable to hear that as a sports scientist, you're very embedded in the, in the weight room uh, and that you have a lot of influences from what many would call traditional strength and conditioning um, and that those two are connected. I think that's one misunderstanding is that sports science is over here and then strength and conditioning is something totally different. Um, and it truly is not that. I think that's awesome. Um, want to ask you about non-weight room skills and working with professional athletes. These guys are professionals. They're at the top level of the game and their sport here in the U.S. Uh, you know, what is that experience like and what non-weight room skills do you have to rely on to be effective? Uh, yeah, the com- communication side of things is, and um, yeah, especially verbiage, um, it changes a lot. I was, um, I'd kind of gone back and forth. Like I said, I was initially exposed to, to pro ice hockey players who traditionally are brute, uh, um, guys. And, and from a strength coach's standpoint, it's, it's for me, it was effective to be somewhat authoritative in the gym. Um, and then coming to the collegiate world was, was similar. Um, all, all the athletes there are developmental, not just physically, but, but also trying to, um, you know, professionally and, and, and mentally uh, prepare themselves for elite sport and pro sport. So um, uh, that's why I think a lot of strength coaches in the collegiate field are authoritative. And I think it's really effective. A lot of guys we get from the draft are well-disciplined, strong, robust, you know, fast, like um, the collegiate athletes coming through a lot of those, you know, power five schools are sensational. Um and I think I think that 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 is speaking volumes of the you know performance staff and, and coaching skills. However, in you know coming to the pro um, coming to the pro field of football in the US is is completely different. Um, I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll share an experience with you where I uh, my first year at Orlando where I completely lost a player just by my <laughs> my coaching style. It was it was really poor, um, and you know I, I'm happy to share that, but. Um, 
we had a uh, player that was from uh, from Italy and he'd played in the top division in Italy, played in World Cups and um, played for the Italian national team and all that sort of stuff. And he was in his 30s and, and at the time I was in my mid to late 20s um, and I'd, I'd, I'd left Louisville uh, and, and gone to Orlando. So I was somewhat still fresh of, of the collegiate world um, and, and the coaching styles that, that are, you know, predominantly common there. And the, the players come in the gym and uh, um, he didn't want to do anything. I said, this is what you're doing today. And he goes, I don't want to. I said, oh, too bad. This is what's best for you. And um, <laughs> just did not go down well. Um, <laughs> it didn't go down well. And I pretty much just lost him. He said, nah, forget it. I'm not doing that. So um, it's, uh, I, I found that out the hard way, but it's, it's certainly a lot different because there's, there's an array of, of personalities and players and, and cultures, more so cultures, uh, in uh, the MLS here, um, the MLS is, is known to scout a lot of players from Central and South America. And traditionally, these, these guys don't have a very large training age in the gym. So you've got these guys who, you know, have made their whole career by being extremely talented technically, uh, but really, really kind of on the low end of, of physicality, especially in the gym. You know, a lot of these guys will want a goblet squat with like a 20, 30 pound dumbbell. Um, and then, like I said, then you get guys coming out of the draft who can comfortably, you know, trap our deadlift 300, 350 pounds and incredibly athletic. Um, and, and, a you know, used to this authoritative coaching figure in the gym. So now you've got this, you know, this big, uh, an array of personalities and cultures. And, um, I think from a strength coach's standpoint, that certainly challenges your, your, you know, uh, what you said, not a non-prescriptive um, skill set, uh, because now you're trying to get the best of, of the play and trying to get, I suppose the buzzword is buy-in from these guys where they're on completely different sides of the scale. So um, I think uh, I, I truly like the transitional um, leadership uh, stuff that, that that's been um, spoken about a lot in the literature and a lot of books. Um, transformational and transitional leadership skills. Um, I think uh, at this level, you, you kind of rely on this a lot and um, you got to be humble enough to, to alter your program on the fly and be um, be diligent about certain things and, and flexible about others. Um, I think there's, when it comes to maybe more so how, how uh, I've done things in, in, the, in the past and more so currently is, there's certainly a handful of things that I feel are non-negotiable in the gym. Um, like I said, traditional strength training, but um, how I get that done is certainly communicated differently to every individual. Um, so yeah, I've, that's a, that's a long answer to your short question, but yeah. No, I like that. Um, speaks to the versatility um, in the role as a strength and conditioning coach, as a sports scientist, I think, we, uh, we all develop that sense of being the, the jack of all trades. You know, we need to be able to communicate across multiple disciplines of the field uh, and, and work with a variety of different personality types. Um, sometimes there's language barriers. Sometimes there's other factors that are uh, impacting the weight room and just being cognizant of that is, uh, is, extremely valuable and kind of speaks to the experiential component that maybe you don't have your first few years of coaching, but, um, you get, um, you get later on. So I thought that was a really great, um, 
great answer and appreciate you sharing that story. You know, it's, it's extremely personal to kind of share maybe something that didn't, didn't go so well, but it obviously, you know, was a valuable experience to you. And I think as coaches, we all have those, we all have things and being uh, open about it and being able to say, Hey, that, that really didn't go so great. Um, what, am, what are we, what are you going to do next time? You know, and that's the thing that um, just being uh, reflective and really evaluating yourself as a coach, that's, that's an extremely valuable, uh, valuable thing to do, uh, when you are in this profession. So I really like that you shared that. Um, I want to ask you, um, about international opportunities for American coaches. I think we all hear of people like yourself coming over from Australia or the UK uh, and working here in the US in a number of different sports, but speak to the uh, American born coaches that may wanna seek out uh, opportunities abroad in coaching. What does that landscape look like? What sort of opportunities are out there and how would you go about navigating that? Oh yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. Um, maybe I'm not the, be, the best answer because I'm still here. So. <laughs> um, no, look, it, it's um, I, I think that's interesting because often uh, you know a lot of people ask me why did I come here, and there's I feel like there's a lot more opportunity here as a strength coach just because there's a collegiate field, there's a there's a high school field, there's private uh, private setting, excuse me, and then the pro environment where at home we don't have pro sport. Um, uh, or elite sports at the, at the collegiate level. We don't have college sports. So you either go private or you go pro. So that kind of limits um, a, a lot of your, your areas where you want to go. Um, so it, it's, it's yeah, I, I think a lot more difficult that way. Um, and maybe that was probably the main reason I came out here because I had been in uh, both of those uh, platforms at home um, and I wanted to come here and work in college and, and work in pro. Um, I, I feel like there's there's more and more internationals going going home because they they hold a different skill set. Um, it, it's certainly the education and background here is different. I feel like there's some incredibly good strength coaches that have learned through the NSA and and through you know Westside Barbell grew up here, so um, there's there's some incredible you know strength coaches here. Whereas uh, maybe Australia, there's there's certain areas um, that that you know, lack that sort of intricate understanding of strength training um, because it was born here. So um, there's probably some, some room for growth there in Australia and, and there's, which, which, you know, in turn creates some opportunities for strength coaches, but yeah, but like I said, it's kind of hard to, I mean, it's hard to get into pro sports in general. So um, where Australia's only limited to, to private and pro that uh, I'd say it makes things a bit more difficult, but. No, yeah. that's interesting. I, I, I didn't really think of it that way with, you know, we do have a high focus on college sports here. And if that wasn't here or being in Australia, when you don't have college athletics, you know, what would the, what would the field look like? What would strength and conditioning opportunities look like? You know, and I, I two American coaches looking for international opportunities, um, you know, just like you do here, I think networking and communicating with 
our international networks. I think um, this is a global community at the NSCA, and we have great relationships with the ASCA, UKSCA, other organizations. And so that's one thing I really do like is that um, whether you are a strength coach home or abroad, I think it's, it's very valuable to network and just learn like we're doing right now, gain perspective uh, from someone that has a different background than you and international opportunities are a great way to do that. So Alex, man, really appreciate you being on the podcast today. Um, would you share your contact information for our listeners if they want to get in touch? Uh, yeah, sure. I guess I'm on uh, social media. It's just uh, every platform. So Twitter and Instagram is just uh, my last name, Calder underscore zero five. Um, not much, uh, not much being posted on there. To be fair, a lot of coffee, maybe a lot of car pictures, and that's really it. But um, um, hopefully, I get a bit more, bit better on those platforms. But yeah, that's that's where you'd follow me. That's great, man. Um, Alex Calder the head of sports science for the MLS Houston Dynamo. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks again for, the, for, you know, for taking the time out to listen to me and uh, invite me on the podcast. It's been great. Absolutely. Everybody, thanks for tuning in today. Also, we'd like to thank Sorenex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. And to all of you listening, we appreciate your support. Again, if you like the podcast, make sure you subscribe wherever you download your podcast from. Write us a review and keep listening in. Thank you, and I look forward to talking with you all soon. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.